1: Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, we often think to become a success in today's modern world, you have to specialize and specialize early. My guest today makes the case that actually, the most creative, innovative, and successful people don't specialize, they're generalists. His name is David Epstein, and he's the author of the book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. We begin our conversation discussing two different paths to success, as embodied by Tiger Woods and Roger Federer, and why we're naturally drawn to the former specialized approach, even Even though the latter's generalized approach is in fact the most common way to success. David then explains why our increasingly complex and abstract world requires not only having a depth but a breadth of knowledge. And how our education system hinders us from gaining such. David and I discuss why you shouldn't expect to know exactly what you're going to do for your career when you're young. Why you should dabble in lots of different activities when you're first starting out in life. Why you should keep doing that even when you're older. And why there's a correlation between having hobbies and winning the Nobel Prize. We also dig into why intrinsic motivation is often mistaken for grit. Why you shouldn't be afraid to sometimes quit things, and the importance of finding pursuits that fit you if you want to achieve success. We end our conversation with David's argument that our increasing specialization is not only stifling individual flourishing, but also getting in the way of scientific advances that would benefit society. After the show is over, check out our show notes at aom.is/range. David joins me now via Clearcast.io. All right, David Epstein, welcome back to the show.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. Again, only uh, six years after my my agent told me not to let it be five years before I have another book out.
1: <laughs> right. Well, your last book that we we had you on to talk about was The Sports Gene, right. which discusses you know why some people are just great at certain sports. But you got a new book out, kind of a left – you said it's a left term, but I think there's a connection. It's called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World – Did The Sports Gene sort of begin the thinking about this book? It absolutely did. And in fact, it sort of led to this book,
0: even though this book is departs from sports after the introduction, it really grew out of The Sports Gene in the sense that after The Sports Gene came out, I was invited to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference to have a debate with Malcolm Gladwell. So it's like on YouTube titled The Sports Gene versus 10,000 Hours, even though we actually have significant... Middle ground. And, you know, because he's very clever and I didn't want to get embarrassed and um, I'd never met him before, I guessed that he would argue about the importance of a head start in athletic development in very narrow, technical, so called deliberate practice. So I went and gathered up, you know, all the studies I could find that tracked the development of future elite athletes. And what I saw was a pattern where in fact, rather than doing sort of the tiger woods where they specialize very early, they have what scientists call a sampling period early where they gain a jet of a breadth of general skills, try an array of sports, learn about their own abilities and their own interests and systematically delay specialization until later than their peers who plateau at lower levels. So I brought that to the debate saying, this is your hypothesis and here's the data that cannot fit with that hypothesis. And afterward, we became running buddies and sort of would talk about it on our own time. And I filed it away in the back of my brain until this point I describe in range where I got involved with the Pat Tillman Foundation that that basically helps military veterans career change and gave a little talk about this. And they were so hungry for information about how to bring diverse experiences to bear on whatever they were going to do, because they felt like they were behind when, in fact, they actually had all these powerful experiences and skills that their peers didn't. And so I started sort of started to think I should really investigate this far outside the sports world and see if we see this same pattern of an advantage accruing to people who go broad early and, and maintain breadth even as everyone around them is rushing to specialize.
1: Okay, let's so let's talk about how you started off with a sports, the sports stick, right? The sports analogy. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned there's two approaches to how we – we go about, or people have about going, you know, becoming an expert. And the one you said, there's the Tiger Tiger Woods method. And then you also say that in the book, there's the Roger Federer way. So talk about, let's say you, so Tiger Woods and Roger Federer, can you do like compare and contrast between those two approaches?
0: Yeah, sure. So originally I, I titled the book proposal Roger versus Tiger. So Tiger Woods I think his development story is pretty well known. He was physically precocious. He could like balance on his father's palm at 6 months old. There are pictures of this in his father's book. He was by the time he was 2, he was on television golfing and by the time he was 3 his father was already giving him like media training for his his future. And by the time he was 4, he was like hustling adults at golf courses. You know, and by the time he was a teenager he was famous. And went on to become the best golfer in the world. And so that this very early specialization, this kind of very 10,000 hours rule-centric specialization became the analogy for a huge number of books that write about performance and how to get good at stuff, saying, just extrapolate this to whatever it is that you want to do. Meanwhile, Roger Federer, his story is much less well-known. He played a huge array of sports as a kid. His mother was actually a tennis coach and refused to coach him because he wouldn't like return balls in a normal way and do sort of structured practice. When he actually got good enough to get bumped up a level, he declined because he just wanted to talk about WWE with his friends after practice. And actually when he first got good enough to get interviewed by a local paper and the reporter asked him what he would buy with his first paycheck, if he ever became a pro, he said a Mercedes and his mother was totally appalled and asked the reporter if she could listen to a recording of the interview. And he obliged and what Roger had actually said was mere CDs in a Swiss German accent. He just wanted more CDs. So un- unlike Tiger, he didn't have these big dreams of being a tennis pro. He w- he didn't specialize. His mother forced him to continue playing badminton, basketball, and soccer long after some of his peers were not only specialized in tennis, but working with sports psychologists and nutritionists. And of course, Rogers rose to the pinnacle of his domain as well. And so my question was, which model, the Roger model or the Tiger model, is the more common one en route to, to
1: expertise. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting because you mentioned, you know, ever since Tiger Woods, there's been all these books put out about how his approach is the way if you want to become an expert in your domain, you got to do the Tiger approach. But I feel like this this is existed even before Tiger, that we had this idea that if you want to become the very best, you had to get started young. I mean, people use examples of like Mozart, right? Who started, you know, composing music when he was three or four and say, well, if you want your kid to be great and whatever, you got to get them started young. Why do you think we have, why do you think that makes sense? And why do we think that the Federer approach, where we sort of dabble and sort of, you know, act like a dilettante, is looked down upon.
0: And th- the Federer approach, by the way, turns out to be the normal one for athletes who-, who go on to succeed. And I think it's, I think it's multifaceted. First of all, it's not that intuitive, right? We are absolutely not programmed to think that there could be anything wrong with a head start or that there is. If you want to be good in X, that you should do anything other than X in order to become the best at that. It's not intuitive. I also think it's partly a holdover from the pre knowledge economy era where the structure of most every organization that people were involved with was very upper out, right? It was the tasks that people had to do for work were much more standardized and they could do similar things over and over and over again. And so they were used to being narrow and, and, quite specialized and then i think these things like tiger and this whole genre of books that picked on tiger and mozart essentially and also some chess players sort of stoked our obsession with precocity right and what those books do is they use these prodigies to say this anybody can do this in any domain but the reality of it is that they pick very particular domains that people who study skill acquisition know are horrible models of almost everything else people want to learn. So it's like this magic trick where they say, look at this classical music prodigy, look at this golf prodigy, do this and whatever you're interested in. But that's where the sleight of hand happens. Because if you look into the research of how people get good at things, golf is like a uniquely poor model of almost everything else that people want to get good at.
1: Well, so yeah, so it's not to say the Tiger Woods approach does not work. It, it only works in specific domains. So like golf, would be one, I think you mentioned chess is one. Yeah. Yeah. Music, possibly. And I guess that what all these have in common is that they're very procedural. Like once you learn the steps, you, you just keep doing the steps over and over again, you can get better at it. I mean, people who study skill acquisition basically classify golf
0: as like an industrial task where you're not really dealing with much human behavior, you're not dealing with teammates, it's non dynamic. Essentially, you're trying to do the known movements. Like you know the answer and you're trying to execute it over and over with as little deviation as possible and that is the epitome of what psychologists call a kind learning environment basically and and as are as is chess to a less degree but but still very much so, as are certain aspects of of classical music, but not music overall and so it's very telling that basically child prodigies always come in a very small range of domains that psychologists who study skill acquisition classify like more like. More like kind of industrial domains and things that are easy to automate, essentially. So it's it's a very small, it's the minority of domains. But, a, you know, this a half dozen bestsellers, at least that I can just think of off the top of my head, use them to extrapolate to everything else. And that's where these inappropriate conclusions are made. Because in fact... The Tiger model may well work for golf. There's actually like a surprising dearth of research on golf compared to other sports. So I don't know, the jury's out, but because of the structure of the domain, I can definitely believe that early specialization is the way to go in golf. But in sports where there are other people involved, where the situations are much more dynamic, where you have to react to things quickly, it is absolutely not the way to go. The the You want to think of it more like studying language. So we know people who grow up multilingual are better able to learn a third language, even a made up one, if scientists give it to them in experiment without being told the rules. And that looks the same for people who play multiple sports that, in, that involve anticipation of what other people are doing or of flying objects. So if you do a bunch of different things early, you're better equipped to be able to pick up any new skills going forward. And so that's what you really want, that, that general framework that allows you to to become a master learner, basically.
1: Okay, so procedural skills, those are a a kind learning environment because you can just learn the things, then you can master them. I guess the other domains that aren't like that, where they're complex, dynamic, you call these wicked worlds or what learning psychology, skill acquisition psychology is called a wicked world.
0: Yeah, and so the kind, so to define the kind learning environment, so if we, it's basically a task where patterns repeat over and over. The task itself is very constrained by very clear rules. And every time you do something, you get feedback that is both immediate and fully accurate. So we can think of, if you think of something like chess, it's very constrained. People aren't allowed to move at the same time, right? You have to pause before another person does something. There's an enormous database of previous games. Patterns repeat over and over. In fact, grandmasters rely on pattern study to do what they do. And the feedback for a move comes quick and all the information is available. And this happens to be what makes it so easy to automate, which is why computers, you know, one of the first things they mastered was chess because it's a kind learning environment. On the other end of the spectrum are most of the things that humans want to learn, where not all the information is available. You're dealing with real-time human behavior and lots of things moving at once not all the information, there's information that's hidden from you. You may get feedback, but you might not get it all the time. It may be delayed. It may be partial. It may be inaccurate. So Robin Hogarth, who coined this, the psychologist who coined this kind, wicked learning environment, used as an example, a famous physician who was renowned for being able to diagnose, diagnose typhoid like before, weeks before a patient had any symptoms at all. And he would do that by palpating their tongue or feeling around their tongue with his hands. And over and over, he could predict who was going to get typhoid before they had a single symptom. And one of his colleagues later pointed out that he was a more prolific carrier of typhoid than typhoid Mary, because he was the one giving typhoid to these patients by feeling around their tongues. And so in that case, the feedback, the positive feedback reinforced the exact wrong lesson. So that's like a super wicked, like most of the things we're doing are not quite that wicked, but they're more toward the wicked end of the spectrum, like tennis, tennis, is further from the kind end of the spectrum than golf. But sports are still you know, far, far from the wicked end of the spectrum compared to most of the things that people are trying to do in the world of work.
1: Yeah, business is a, is a wicked world because there's so many constituent parts and it's, they interact with each other complex ways that you can't predict. Politics would be one, just management, like working in organizations. There's all these different people with different interests and you don't know what their interests are. And so you can't, you can't come up, you can't develop a system to manage that.
0: That, That's a great point, you know, and so, and I, and this, this shows up. So in that, in more wicked learning environments, what you want is breadth. So there's a, there's a classic finding again, in people who study how we acquire skills that's, that goes like this breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. So what you want to do in a world where you're not repeating the same thing over and over the trick is to be able to apply your knowledge and skills to situations you've never seen before. So not like golf, not like chess. And if you want to be able to do that, you want to have really broad training because instead of learning procedures, what you're trying to do is learn these general abstractions that are frameworks that you can apply going forward. So you know, it, to, to use some research that I cite in range is training people to respond to, well, training on, on simulations to respond to naval threats, essentially training commanders. And they tested all these different methods of training. And some of the people would practice a certain scenario over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again until they got really good over the course of that day on responding to a certain scenario. Other people saw a different scenario every time in training. And at the end of the training period, the people who were always seeing a different scenario were frustrated. They felt like they hadn't learned much because they weren't performing that well. Whereas the people who saw similar scenarios over and over and sort of internalized those procedures got better and better. And then, when they bring them back and show them situations they've never seen before, the people who were frustrated in training and had this broad training destroy the people who were doing this, who were sort of mastering specific scenarios over and over. And these are, again, on on situations that none of them have ever seen before. And so the breadth of their training predicted how well they could transfer their skills to totally new situations. And that's sort of the theme. And in, in the more wicked end of the learning environment. So I, I was just reading some LinkedIn research you mentioned in business that looked at half a million members and what was the best predictor of someone going on to become an executive. And it was the number of different job functions they had worked across in their domain. Actually, if they'd gone to a top five MBA program was, was almost as about as influential, but that they couldn't tell if that was because of the school or just because of the student selection or whatever. But in terms of things that were more in people's control, the number of different job functions they had worked across. And I think that's a similar finding, right? It's their, their breadth of training gives
1: them the ability to manage situations they've never seen before. Well, I'd like to talk about some research you highlight in the book that I thought was really interesting that highlights the need of more breadth in your thinking and your skill acquisition. And you talk about the Flynn effect, right? And this is the idea that over the past few decades, IQ scores have been going up every year. But they're, they're trying to figure out like, why, why is that happening? So why why is it that we've been getting better at IQ tests? Like, are we getting smarter or is it just the way that we think is changing that make us do better IQ tests?
0: Yeah, it was it was over most of the course of the 20th century, a rise of about three points, per decade. And that's so much that like our great grandparents would look handicapped compared to us if the tests weren't re-standardized. The tests are always re-standardized. So hundred is, is the average. And we're not like, we don't have better brains than them, right? So the question for psychologists who saw this pattern is, well, why are people getting more questions right? And not only getting more questions right, but getting more questions right in the places where the test was least supposed to change over time. So the most abstract questions. So that the IQ test that showed the biggest change over time was one called Raven's Progressive Matrices, where you just get, this. this was designed to be what's called a culturally reduced test. So like nothing you learn in life or school should affect your performance. So if Martians landed on earth, this is the test you'd give them and it could show how clever they were because it doesn't involve any learning. And it just involves these abstract patterns and ones missing. And you just have to look at the ones that are there and try to fill in the missing one and scores rose extremely rapidly on that test where it was where you the least change was expected and it turns out that that's the case even if you look at the more concrete tests we we aren't doing that much better on specific subjects you know vocabulary and that stuff but wherever there are more abstract questions people are doing much much better even in cases where Test scores in some countries have gone backward on specific learning in things like math and vocabulary. They've still Im- improved on these more abstract questions, and the evidence suggests that that's because as we moved from a less from a world where we were less focused on the concrete in front of us and and, and focused on our experience where we move to a world where work is much more interconnected. It's much more based on knowledge that you have to transfer. Like we get by by transferring our skills to different situations all the time and to different jobs. And we take that for granted now, but that's not something that people a hundred years ago were as capable of. The world didn't demand it of them as much. They could be much more comfortable sort of staying in a very narrow lane of knowledge and repeating known tasks and procedures. But as the world has become more complex, we have adapted to that by becoming better at abstract thinking, which means it's, it's not that one type of thinking is better than the other per se, but we're much more adapted to an environment where we can laterally transfer our knowledge to totally new tasks very effectively.
1: Well, can you give us an example of like, say, an abstract question you would, if you ask, say, you know, someone in 1875... They would have like a hard time, you know, answering it because they would be thinking in concrete terms.
0: Yeah. So there are, for example, in in range, I write about this through a Russian psychologist who goes, who when the Soviet Union is undergoing, you know, the socialist revolution and they are nationalizing this remote farmland in what today is Uzbekistan, and. The so these people who've been subsistence farmers and been able had to be very, very good at the things they know, but didn't have to know much else, are suddenly being connected to the rest of the world. And some of them are um, so so they're having to manage work with other people, not just with themselves. And when you ask them things, first of all, if you ask them to classify things like objects or colors, they, they basically are unwilling to do that. Whereas some of the people who have had some exposure to modernity they can classify, like if you give them shapes, they'll always liken it to an object, right? So if it's a circle, then it's a coin. And if it's a dotted circle, then it's a watch. Whereas the people who've been exposed to some modernity can classify all the different types of circles together in a group, even if they don't know the word circle, they'll recognize that there's some abstract commonality. And that sort of thing shows up all the way up to sort of formal logic where if you ask some, some of these more pre-modern people, for example, you know, who are not working in the, in the world of connected work, things like they'll say, well, cotton grows well where it's hot and dry. In England, it's cold and wet. Does cotton grow well in England? They'll basically refuse to answer and say things like, well, you'd have to ask someone who's been there in the case where those questions were asked of people who were experts in cotton growing, if you really push them, they might say like, well, it probably shouldn't grow there if it's, if it's cold and wet. So you can kind of push them. But if you use a question that uses the exact same logical structures, but something they're unfamiliar with, they can't answer it. So one of the questions that, that Luria asked was this, this logic problem where he says something like where it's cold and there's snow, all the bears are white. And then he says, like, in Novaya Zemlya, this this town in the far north, um, there is always snow. What color are the bears there? And they can't answer it. They'll say, like, I-, I don't know. I haven't been there. Or you'd have to talk to someone who's been there. And so they're unable to transfer knowledge to situations they've never seen before, which again, doesn't mean that their thinking is worse per se, but it is not well adapted to the kind of transfer between domains that we're very well equipped to do today.
1: Okay. So most of the, the, the thinking we do in the modern world, if you live in a Western modern world is abstraction, right? Like yeah. a lot of our work is just abstract, even you know the way you interact with the world, like a video game is an ab- abstraction, right? You understand totally. it's not actually a, you're playing Red Dead Redemption, you're not actually riding a real horse. It is a you know pixels of a horse, so it helps us think like that. So, despite this more abstract world, how do we school? Like, are we educating kids and young people to do well in this abstract world, or do we kind of go back to that very like concrete? Like you need to learn these vo- this, these vocab words, and you need to know this information, et cetera?
0: Yes, yeah, so that's a that's a great question. And to pick up on on what you mentioned about Red Dead Redemption, not to go backward, but just for a sec, we are so accustomed to abstraction, so good at it, we don't even, we totally take it for granted, right? Like when you are, whatever, like downloading the latest flash update or whatever it is on your computer and you see some bar that's like filling up a progress bar to 100%, that's a massive series of abstractions. That bar is some sort of representation of time, which itself is some representation of this huge number of underlying instructions that the computer is carrying out, which itself is an abstraction that's actually just a bunch of zeros and ones that the computer is using, right? And so there's all these layers of abstraction. So computer programmers do really well on cognitive tests of abstraction because they have to come up with stuff like this. And so I think in the sense, in, in one way, I think we're doing a good job preparing people for this world in the sense that if you think about video games and you think about the way we deal with apps and computers now, we've gotten really used to doing things without instructions and trying to deduce the rules and just start learning something by using it. Right, this is what Robin Hogarth the kind wicked psychologist he says never mind golf and tennis. Most of us in the world are playing Martian tennis where there's something going on but you don't know the rules. Nobody's told you and they're subject to change without notice and you just have to deduce them and they and they could change at any time so you may have to deduce them again. So I think the world at large is doing a decent job but school-wise not great. I think If you look at people always complain about the school system today compared to yesteryear. And if you look at tests of basic skills, without question, students now do way better than our parents did. No question. The problem is the challenge has gotten much more difficult because our economy is so based on transferable knowledge. The improvements aren't keeping pace with what's really sort of needed in the world, basically. Like if you look at tests that were given a generation ago to sixth graders, it's very procedural, very procedural. Like, uh, And if you look at them now, it requires a lot more abstract thinking. And so I think there's some movement in that direction, but it's not fast enough. And what James Flynn, the discoverer of the Flynn effect describes in range is this problem where teachers and professors tend to lean toward didactic information, filling people with information or with procedures on how to do things, because it's easy to conceptualize that. It's it's easy to teach and you see immediate progress. The problem is it doesn't build these more fundamental general skills that allow you to then better learn anything later on. And so he was sort of he describes in the book this study he did looking at how well uh, grades in college at at an elite college corresponded to the ability of a student to do well on like a really important abstract thinking test that that tests the kind of critical thinking that you need in the world. And the correlation was zero between grades in college and the scores on that test, which suggests that there's a real disconnect. And And if you look at some of the data he's collected, it suggests that the work world is doing a decent, is, is having a larger input into making people better abstract thinkers than school is. So I think we're missing an opportunity there.
1: We're gonna take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display, and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Rocketmoney.com slash manliness. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never frozen meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factor meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh to to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout cuz you feel gross after takeout if you'd like to try Factor Meals head to factormeals.com/manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off that's code manliness50 at factormeals.com/manliness50 to get 50% off check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop it's really good picture that thing you've always wanted to learn all right you got that in your head masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Well, and we can keep talking about school because you have a chapter about um, approaches teachers take to teaching students. And one way that when you sit in on a class and you listen to a teacher interact with a student, you see this interaction take place where the teacher is, you know, asking questions, but also getting, giving hints and help trying to help the student like feel some success early on so they don't get discouraged but what's the study what does the research say on that that sort of teaching method?
0: yeah so so similar to some of the sports research what it says and what you're describing is this this scene from this international math study that that opens chapter four where this really charismatic teacher is you know teaching math to, young students and what happens over and over is the students sort of learn to play a form of multiple choice where she'll pose a problem to them that re- might require some abstract thinking or some conceptual thinking or it might not but either way the way that they interact with the teacher will cause her to give so many hints that they can always turn what's called a making connections problem where you're forced to connect different ideas into a using procedures problem where they just figure out rules that they can apply over and over and When you do using procedures practice, which you need some of, for sure, but the problem, the good thing about using procedures practice is you see progress right away. The bad thing is it undermines future progress because you're not learning how to connect ideas in a much larger system. And so the countries that do better in math education, like Japan, um, instead of having practice over and over and over again in... Uh, to practice procedures on problems. You go into a classroom there and and I've I've been there and seen this and the whole class period might be one problem where there's a huge blackboard. That's the size of an entire wall. All the kids have name magnets. The teacher will do one problem that can connect a whole different, a, a large number of different concepts at each stage. He asks students for ideas. They come up, write their idea down. They stick their magnet next to it. It may be right or wrong. And then other students try different ideas. And at the end of the class, you have this like captain's log of the intellectual journey of the class as they connected a bunch of different ideas and went through false starts in one problem. And so Japan actually has a, a word that means this kind of writing on a blackboard that, that connects ideas and tracks the thinking through the class is called bansho. And Japan does much better using these making connections kinds of questions, whereas the U.S. is much more focused on using procedures and that's just like golf. Using procedures is fine as long as you're going to face the exact same problems over and over again. But what you really want is not to teach the students how to use procedures, but to teach them how to pick the right strategy for a type of problem. And that's a totally different thing. And it, this actually relates, I don't want to go on too long on this, but this relates to what I thought was kind of the single most surprising study in the book um, for me, if uh, if you want me to share that one. if I have Yeah, go ahead. So the single most surprising study to me was this one, in chapter four done at the US Air Force Academy, because I don't think you could set up this, there would be no other way to set up this study. And what happened was these, these researchers wanted to look at the impact of teaching on student achievement over time, not just in a single class. And the Air Force has this incredible setup for this experiment because it brings in students every year. They all have to take a certain sequence of math courses, and they are randomized to their professor in the first class, And they all have to take the exact same test and it's graded the exact same way. And it's basically the whole grade for the course. And then they are re-randomized the next year to the follow-on course, Calculus 2 or whatever it is. And then they are re-randomized again the next year. So you get these multiple steps of randomization and the students' abilities coming in are spread evenly across these classes. You can really see the effect of professors. And what the researchers found was that the teachers who were the best at promoting good test scores in their own class systematically undermined the future performance of their students in future classes. So those teachers would teach more narrowly because they knew what the students had to learn to do well on the test. The the students would rate those teachers really well because they could see instant progress. They would do well on the test and then they would underperform in all their future classes. Whereas the teachers whose students rated lower because they were more difficult, they taught much more broad concepts, connected ideas. Those students often struggled on the calculus one exam and then overperformed in all the subsequent courses, which is really counterintuitive. And we're not programmed to think that we could be making progress before our eyes and that could be undermining our long-term development. But again, it's the same thing you see in the sports literature. And the math learning literature, and in a whole bunch of other domains that 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 I talk about in range.
1: Well, it's like that Navy study, right? The this, the group that learned the procedure on that how to handle a certain situation, a certain war game, they did well initially, but when they got put in something different, they just they got they got tanked.
0: Exactly. So if you want somebody, if your goal is for the individual to be able to respond well to situations that aren't exactly like something that's come before, what you want to do is is force them into an environment where they have to learn to connect ideas and build these these abstractions that they can fit to new situations as opposed to giving them procedures um, that they know how to execute as long as they're seeing exactly something they've seen before.
1: And I imagine there's like, kids are really good at finding procedures. So if if you're a parent with a kid in school and you notice that, man, they're doing really well all the time, well, it might be because they just figured out a procedure. Like they have a knack for finding the procedure and they're just following that procedure and it might not benefit them in the long run.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that cognitive psychologist Nate Cornell says in that chapter is that ease, um, difficulty is not a sign that you aren't learning, but ease is a sign that you aren't learning. Uh, so if something is too easy for you, then you're not really learning. It's so when progress is made too fast that should actually be kind of a, a warning sign. The problem is we've set up our evaluation systems. You know, and, and we're just oriented. It's more intuitive just to be oriented toward before your eyes progress. Like, you know, what could be bad about that? What could ever be bad about a head start? But it it turns out that whether it's in math or sports, um, the way to develop the best 10-year-old is not the same as the way to develop the best 20-year-old.
1: Okay, so if we want to excel in this this world of abstraction where you're going to be faced with problems you've never encountered before, we want to get a broad range of skills, a broad range of things so we can make connections. Let's talk about some ways we can do that. Um, you gave this great example. I never heard of this group. It's uh, the Vigile de Coro. Did I say that right? It, it's it, that, It's— this is a tough one. It's technically pronounced Filia, filia. del Coro. Filia yeah. del Coro. This it's, was like. It's a,
0: spelled Figli del Coro, figli, but it's pronounced yeah. Filia. It's Italian. So,
1: yeah. So this was a group of musicians at a basically a, a convent, right, in France, like in the 1700s, where they became world renowned and famous. And it was kind of counterintuitive how they got to that point.
0: Yeah. So in, in Italy, they were in Venice and they were. in in the 17th and 18th centuries and, and not just musicians, but they, the filia, which means that just means daughters, filia del coro means daughters of the choir technically. And they were actually basically, so Venice had a, had a very vibrant sex industry at the time. And that led to a problem, which was babies, especially baby girls who didn't have fathers would end up in the canals sometimes. And this was recognized as a social ill that needed to be fixed. And these institutions were established. They weren't technically convents. They weren't they weren't technically religious, but they sort of had quasi monastic rules that they ran by and they were attached to churches. And basically they had like the the most famous one called, they were called hospitals, but they weren't really hospitals because the Ospedale del Pieta, the house of mercy, basically. It had like a, like a luggage check thing. You know, when you go to an airline and if you can fit your carry on in that, check thing, then you can bring it on. They had one uh, in the door where if you put the baby and the baby fit in there, you can ring a little bell and they'll come pick it up and they'll raise it. No questions asked if it fits in the, the carry on luggage thing and that they called the scafetta. And they would try to raise these girls to become self-sufficient. And the, the ospedali was a, its own like internal economy and all these things. And at a certain point, people started, they, they would pay the girls as they'd want to make themselves sufficient for learning different skills. So they'd give them a little money reward. And at a certain point, people started donating used instruments there. And the girls would realize, hey, you know, they can, one, it's fun. And also it counts as new skills if they learn a different instrument. So they would start trying to learn a whole bunch of different instruments. Some of these instruments, musicologists no longer even know what they were because they were these like experimental instruments. And by in in the course of learning this large number of instruments the people who ran the ospedali started to notice that they could pick up anything really really quickly they had built these sort of models of how to learn music and so they started having them perform in the adjoining churches and they were so good that money started pouring into the ospedali and so they started having more performances antonio vivaldi who the composer of the four seasons which is probably like now the most famous arguably like the most famous it's like almost a pop hit and it's 300 years old basically right there's like a mashup with the song from disney's frozen that has 100 million views on youtube or something and they became vivaldi's muses he recognized their ability to pick up anything to pick up new forms of music and they became his muses and he sort of became their composer and they became the greatest musicians in the world these orphans of the venetian sex industry whose training consisted of attempting to learn as many different instruments as they possibly could, which equipped them with this ability to learn entirely new types of music and new instruments like on a whim. And for a hundred years until Napoleon came and uh, and as troops took over Venice, they were the greatest musicians in the world.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of them, I think you give an example like this one. She got too old to play a particular instrument. So she like just, okay, I got to play this instrument now. And she was able to do it really easy. Like the transition was smooth. Yeah.
0: Well, her teeth, her teeth fell out. So she couldn't play right. uh, the wind instrument she played anymore. So she just switched to one of the other ones and, and, and kept performing.
1: So these are, these are people who didn't get like that head start training where they're, you know, the mom and dad was having them sit down and do, you know, scales, you know, from morning till night they were just messing around with these instruments and then you also like jazz musicians were the same way some of the, the greatest jazz composers most of them didn't get any formal training they just kind of picked up a guitar and then figured out how to play it and they came up with this really complex new ways of playing music
0: yeah two two different jazz people that i interview in the in the chapter on music one uh, two jazz players and, and instructors told me the same joke one time when i was interviewing them and it goes like this you 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 If you're a jazz musician, you know, you ask one of the guys you're about to play with if they can read music and they're supposed to respond, not enough to hurt my playing. And a lot of them do in fact, learn how to play music, but they learn, they, they, they do what I call learning like a baby. So when you learn language, you don't, you don't learn the grammar first, right? You learn the sound, you get thrown in, you're immersed, you, you struggle, you fail, And then you learn the grammar much later, if at all. And that seems to be the way, so that the sort of 10,000 hour school has focused very narrowly on a certain type of classical playing. So I mentioned in range, the Cambridge Handbook of Expertise, which is like the Bible of the 10,000 hour rule school has an entire chapter on music and it's all on a very particular type of classical music. And then there's just like one offhanded mention where it's like in jazz and modern popular music, uh, it seems like actually the people are much broader and start later and sample more stuff. And then it just goes back to, so it basically just gives that short shrift, most of the types of music that everyone listens to and plays now. And those musicians develop much more along the Roger model than the Tiger model, where they sample different instruments. Their, their practice doesn't explode until they find an instrument that fits them. So it, if you look at this research over time, It's not that the musicians who end up practicing a lot who are exceptional generally are just practice-aholics It's they go through more instruments than their peers. So some of their peers will stick with their first instrument, even if it's not a great fit, they feel like they have a head start and can't switch. Whereas the students who go on to become exceptional, they sample instruments until they find one that they think is a fit and then their practice volume explodes. So it looks more like, less like they personally are just practice fanatics And more like they're maximizing what, what economists call their match quality, the degree of fit between who they are, their abilities and interests and, and what they do. And that, that seems to be the rule for most of music development with some, some exceptions. Well, let's talk about
1: that idea of fit because people have this idea that, you know, particularly if you're a young person, you're in college, you're, you're, you're 20 years old, you got to pick a major, you have to know whether you're going to go to medical school or law school even if you don't even know like if you like medicine or law and then you just have to grind it out until you get there and you might find out man i just don't like doing this like why do we overlook that idea of fit um, like you know, finding something that we're actually good at
0: it's interesting you mentioned that because theodore schultz a nobel laureate economist sort of chastised his field for overlooking fit like we had studied higher education and saw that okay it makes people more productive by giving them some skills but he said we've overlooked studying the effect on match quality which is that because people come out of high school they know very little about the world they know relatively little about themselves it's all you know everything they know is constrained by their very their their roster of previous experiences and what about when they get to have a sampling period like the athletes does that influence how good they become and how well they fit with what they're doing. And the answer is it absolutely does. So in range, I discuss research on an economist who found sort of a natural experiment by looking at school systems where people are made to specialize at different times, you know, some in their teen years, and then some can delay until later. And what he finds is that the people who specialize earlier jump out to an income lead. But by about six years into their work, the later specializers catch and surpass them. And the earlier specializers start quitting their careers in much higher numbers because they didn't have enough time to sample and figure out a good fit in the first place or to optimize their match quality. And so there's, of course, nothing wrong with getting a law degree or getting a medical degree. But I think the research suggests it's actually a dangerous thing to decide to do before you really know if that's a good long-term goal for, for yourself. So you need a little little sampling to maximize your match quality. And all the research in this area suggests that when people change careers and jobs, they're set back a little bit in certain specific skills, but their growth rate becomes much higher because each time they do it, they are responding to match quality information and optimizing their fit with what it is that they're doing.
1: Well, going back to like the sports gene, this made me think of like, you know, why some athletes do well in certain sports is because their body is fit for that sport. Like Michael Phelps. know, he, of course he works hard, right. But like his body's designed for swimming. But if he decided I want to play whatever sport and just like grind it out, he might've been okay, but he probably wouldn't have been reached the level as he did in, in swimming.
0: Right. I mean, he obviously has these traits like, you know, willingness to practice and all these things. But again, that usually follows match quality, not preceding it. So there's no evidence that he would have been a fanatical trainer if he were a runner, for example. And that's a lot of research I discussed that suggests that once someone finds a fit, it just looks like they're a fanatical trainer, or, or like that—that's their personality. But like, if you look at the guy who's the world record holder in the mile, who's seven inches shorter than Phelps, they wear the same length pants because their bodies are conducive to different types of performance. And I think one of the many reasons why we see that Roger pattern in the development of sports is that as we push selection earlier and earlier, people aren't even biologically mature yet, and the more the earlier you push selection, the more in anything, the more likely you put the wrong person in the wrong thing. And, and that's also why in sports, we see this so-called relative age effect where unlike junior national teams, you see this incredible concentration of kids who are just born early in whatever the selection year is because they're more biologically mature than their peers and their coaches mistake that for their potential. And then that effect disappears at the elite level. So, which suggests to me, that it's a really bad system and causes us to deselect a lot of people who would potentially go on to become elite.
1: Right. And so this dabbling period, it allows you to find what you're good. And you said like, you know, these guys who in sports, they dabble, they eventually find their fit. Like Michael Phipps finally finds swimming. Roger Federer finally finds tennis. But this can also apply, you know, to just like personality or your brain. Like, I mean, I think they've done studies like the human brain isn't fully formed until like 25, 26. So you might be almost a completely different person when you were, when you're 26 than when you were at 18, where you, when you were deciding your, your life trajectory.
0: In fact, you're getting at an important concept in range called the end of history illusion. So this is the psychological finding that when we all look backward, we say, oh gosh, we really changed a lot because of all our experiences in the past, but we think that we're, we're mostly done or we won't change that much in the future. And it turns out that we're wrong at every stage of development. So Personality, the, the the time of most rapid personality change is from about 18 through your late 20s. And so if you're picking what you're doing at age 16 or 17 or 18, you're absolutely selecting a career for someone that you don't even know yet. That the, the correlation between someone's teen years and middle age for a particular personality trait for the statistically inclined is usually like 0.2 or 0.3, which means there is absolutely still signs of the previous you in the later you that are distinguishable, but you are a very different person. That's like a low, low moderate kind of correlation. So you, we all change more than we expect, which leads to some really funny results, by the way, like when people are, people think their preferences will stay the same. So when they're asked how much they would pay to see their favorite band today in 10 years, for 10 years from now, the $129 is the average answer, but asked how much they would pay to see their favorite band from 10 years ago today, the average is only $80 because we underestimate how much our preferences will change. And the way that I discuss this in range is that because we underestimate personality change, um, we really need to be ready to adjust a lot going forward because we're facing the challenge of how to behave when we don't know the future us or the future world that we'll be living in. and What's the best approach to take when you're facing that problem?
1: So basically, if you are 22 years old listening to this podcast and you, you're worried you don't know what you're supposed to be doing with your life, like that's okay. You're going to be fine.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a great, you know the, the Y Combinator invest, investor Paul Graham, I excerpt a little bit of a graduation speech that he wrote but never gave in the book where he, he basically calls this idea that you should have a long-term plan and know exactly what you're going to do. He says computer scientists call this premature optimization. Like all the, he says all the successful people he knows take this approach of short-term planning, looking at the opportunities in front of them, taking them and being ready to adjust. And he was saying that just based on his his experience with startups and, and people he knows, but that turns out to be like the seminal finding of this research discussed in range called the Dark Horse Project. So these Harvard researchers who wanted to study how people find fulfilling careers and their surprising finding was that those people are systematically averse to like rigid long-term planning. Their their main common trait is short-term planning. So what they do is they say, here's who I am right now. Here are the skills I have. Here are the things I want to learn, the interests I want to explore. Here are the opportunities in front of me. Here's what I'll do. And maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something different and see a better fit. And they just do that and they zigzag their way to a place where they uniquely can succeed and feel fulfilled. And the reason this study was named at the Dark Horse Project, that wasn't what it was called initially, was when they were studying these people who find fulfillment all of those people would come in you know in their initial interviews and say like well i know you're trying to tell people how to go about finding a career but like don't give them the advice to do what i did because i changed paths a whole bunch of times and like you know i didn't wasn't one for long term goal setting and they found like 90% of the people say that they're like well i'm not a good model but in fact that is the good model but they think they're all oddballs or exceptions because it's hard advice to give right like when I was at Sports Illustrated, I would get contacted by students all the time asking "I want to if I want to be a sports writer, should I major in English or journalism? And I, I, I studied geology and astronomy, so I have no idea. But I was still inclined to give them the advice that was like, you know, start doing your journalism internships right now, even though the source of power for me that allowed me to become the youngest senior writer there was the fact that I had this science background that was totally average when I was a science grad student but totally exceptional when I was at a sports magazine, but it's hard advice to give, you know?
1: Okay, so we've been kind of dogging deliberate practice uh, against dogging it, don't starting starting it too early. You don't want to start it too early. So the idea is like, you're going to dabble for a couple of years, you know, maybe into your early 20s. And then once you find something, that's when you start seeing these high performers starting the deliberate practice, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's nothing, deliberate practice is great, right? You want to do deliberate practice. I think, and this is, and Malcolm Gladwell and I were just invited back to the MIT Sloan conference recently. And what he said, and again, th- this is on YouTube, he says, "I've changed my mind. I think the fact that to be great requires a lot of practice. I thought that implied that you needed to focus narrowly and start early, and now I feel differently. And I think that was a that was. I thought what he was saying too, you know, and, and my ideas evolved since starting with my first book, but, but even more so now. And I think it's the implication that that means that you should, to be great at X, you should only do X as early as possible is not supported by, by the research. So you still need to do a bunch of practice, but I think even after the dabbling, you should keep career streams open. So there's early in range, I mentioned research on people who go from becoming great performers essentially, whether that's like an athlete or a musician or a surgeon or whatever, to being people who are great at like running an orchestra or managing a sports team or running a hospital. And one of the features of those people, again, it's just another finding of the breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer, is the the scientist studying this says they keep multiple career streams open. He says they're they're traveling an eight-lane highway instead of a one-way street. And so even once they get more focused, they kind of keep other interests around a little bit And eventually they're able, better able to transfer into these, these management positions. Um, So I think even there, this, this breadth continues to be important. And so you shouldn't get totally, totally blinkered even once you become, even though at some point or another, all of us specialize to one degree or another, of course. Well,
1: you even highlight research that people who win Nobel prizes, because they've specialized in one particular area of science or mathematics, they are more likely to have like a hobby, like improvisation or painting or music uh, than just the average population
0: way more likely Th- they're they're 22 times more likely than other scientists to have a serious hobby that usually deals with like aesthetics you know music magic writing art glass blowing all these sorts of things generally tinkering so they're much more like so national level scientists who get inducted in national academies are much more likely to have serious hobbies than the average scientist and the Nobel laureates are much more likely still. And so one of the researchers one of the phrases that I loved in range was this researcher who studies scientific creativity calls a network of enterprise. They have a network of enterprise where they're doing all these different things that from afar might look like it's diluting their thinking but in fact a lot of this stuff ends up informing their ability to find problems that nobody else is looking at. So the The father of modern neuroscience, the Spanish Nobel laureate, Ramon Santiago y Cajal, uh, sorry, Santiago Ramon y Cajal, he has a quote that I loved. There's something like, from afar, it looks as if they are dissipating their energies, when in fact, they are channeling and strengthening them. And it's striking to read Nobel acceptance speeches in recent years, which I did a lot of, and see that almost every year, a scientist who's accepting an award says, I something to the effect of I wouldn't be able to do my research now because you have to be so narrow in looking for applications. So I, and that 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 strikes me as something that's worrisome. No, we can we can talk about that in a minute.
1: But like I like this idea that these these are individuals who have gone deep in one area, but they continue that breadth. I think there's like that uh, guy from the design school IDEO calls them like T-shaped people, yeah, right? Yeah, so they exactly. they got the vertical going up and down is the depth and then they have like the 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 horizontal part of the T which is breadth.
0: Totally. And and there's and that that comes up in range in a section about inventors where this woman who rose up to to what's called corporate scientist at the company 3M. Corporate scientist is like the highest title. She talks about how like she's never people kept telling her not to change directions. And she's like basically never worked in anything she was educated for. But what she does is she knows how to sort of draw on her peers in order to assemble the I part of the T, essentially. She's very broad. She she basically spends her time figuring out what everyone else is doing. She's obviously very science literate. She has a PhD, just doesn't work in her own area and makes sure to know what everyone else around her is doing and uses them to help sort of cobble together the, the trunk of the T, but her contribution is more like the crossbar of the T, And, and she and other people like her have been able to, to use that kind of breadth with a grounding in a certain area and also drawing on other specialists to, to be really high impact. And I think that's why you see in, in some of the research I cite that the highest impact inventors are not the deepest specialists, but the inventors who do have an area of expertise where they have some depth but then they spread their career over the largest number of different classes of technology as, as defined by the patent office, basically.
1: I want to talk about one more thing with in terms, in terms of fit, because I think it's very counterintuitive and it goes against what you, know, you hear growing up as a kid, and it's this idea that you should never quit anything, right? Once you start something, you got to see it through. You got to develop grit, which there's been a lot of talk about, thanks to Duckworth and her research in her book. This idea of finding fit, finding that, you know, dabbling until you find the thing that you're, you, you're good at and that you're, you're, that's made for you, that requires you, you're going to have to quit stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the, one, of the, one of the sort of underlying messages of range is when you find fit, it will look like grit. And I think we've made a mistake in the way we think about the study of personality, where we look at what people are now and assume that's who they are. But, but we change not only over time, but with context. So I think an emerging promising area of the study of personality studies, what's called if then signatures, where you might say, if David is at a massive party, he's an introvert. But if David is with his team, small team at work, then he's an extrovert. And it's turning out that personality is much more complicated and that we look different in different scenarios. And the same for. Grit or conscientiousness is is it's it's like the psychological construct of conscientiousness, where if you if you get fit, it'll look like you have grit. The same with the musicians, right? Where they weren't practice aholics until they found an instrument that really fit their their skills and their interests, and then they became practice The study of this, the famous studies of grit all involve subjects really short term. It's like people trying to get through six weeks of physical rigors at the US Military Academy or kids who are already in the final of the National Spelling Bee and trying to get farther. The studies are always done on a very select population of people who have a very narrow, well-defined, very short-term goal right in front of them. And the problem has been we've extrapolated that to all of life where it doesn't make as much sense, where a lot of the research shows what you want to do is, you know, constantly be evaluating your opportunities. And S- Stephen Levitt, I-, I quote him saying, well, one of his main talent, the Freakonomics economist, as, as people know him, one of his main talents has been to identify when he should abandon a project or a whole domain of study and move to another one. And so that motivated him to do a study of job quitting. And he found that when people are thinking about quitting, basically they they should, because they move on to something that's, that's a better fit. And Seth Godin, you know, it's given some of the most Popular career advice ever, I think, says not only should you be willing to quit, not not just because something's hard, right? You don't want to quit just because something's hard, but when you start something, you should basically always have in mind criteria under which y- you would decide to quit. And so, I think while preaching grit is incredibly intuitively appealing, you know, I, I critique the science of grit at, at a lot more length and range. But I think it, the way that we've extrapolated what it means does not comport with a huge body of research on how people find the areas where they can become the most productive and fulfilled.
1: Right, so you might not become world-class gritting yourself into something you're not a fit for. But once you find something that, 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 is a, that, you ha- that is a fit for you, the grit will could just come naturally, right? Because you'll just want to do it. And then you can become world-class because you're just sort of riding that wave of sort of internal motivation.
0: That's right. And you can think about, I mean, things that that were sort of viewed by parents as the total opposite of grit maybe not so long ago like playing lots of video games now are careers where they've drawn enough interest from people that may not have that sort of grit in other areas or I mean I was a college athlete right and there were it, I think it's demonstrably false that grit is just a stable characteristic in people so there were people who were I was a track athlete 800 meter runner and there were guys I trained with, who are absolute competitive demons would claw your, you know, head off in a race. Who had not a sign of competitiveness, not a competitive bone in their body when it came to the classroom, and vice versa. And So I think we all recognize these sorts of things, but we don't really, we don't really have like good shared language for talking about them, or, or we don't, we don't think very deeply about them.
1: All right. So yeah. Again, like if you're a twenty-something, don't feel bad if you're going to make a, a change in your manger. Right. Or you decide you're going to quit law school because after the first semester, you may realize I don't like law. Or even if you're 30 or 40 and you decide to quit your job, do something else, that's okay. It might actually, it probably will turn out better for you.
0: Yeah. It's, 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 it's psychologically unsettling. Right. It's, and it's, it's, it's riskier. As the Dark Horse Project researchers say, it's riskier to stick with that long term goal before you really, you know, have sampled enough to, to formulate a good one than it is to abandon it. Like we always feel like we're in a rush, but I think we, you know you notice as you get a little older, like you weren't in as much of a rush as you think you are, and it's it's well worth it to put in a little bit of time investment in figuring out who you are and where you can make the biggest impact. So I like I do this going forward. I started what I call a book of experiments, where there are things like, and in 2018, one of my experiments was I spent some some time volunteering, and I wanted to figure out where could I make the biggest impact and where would I learn the most. So I. Sp- spread my time over about a half dozen different organizations that year, found the two where I think I can actually contribute uniquely and also learn something. And now I focus in on those. And so I'm, I'm now, based on the research that went into the book, sort of constantly running experiments, setting up experiences in a way where I have a hypothesis. The experience can help me test that, reflecting on it, and then just keep zigzagging and triangulating my way to a place where I think I can uniquely succeed and feel good about what I'm doing.
1: All right, so we've been talking about so this idea of range on an individual level. You want to you know dabble in lots of things so you can find fit, and that means you're going to have to quit things. Once you're learning something, you want the learning in the beginning to be hard, not easy, because if it's easy, it means you're probably not learning. But I want to go back to something you said about you, know, you, re- you read all these uh, acceptance speeches from Nobel Prize winners. I want to talk about how this idea of specialization and sort of downplaying the importance of range is affecting us on a a broader scale. And you highlight research or, you know, just ideas from Nobel prize winners that our specialization that we've been doing, our hyper-specialization we've been doing in science and in other areas, it's actually preventing breakthroughs from coming through and they're actually diminishing over time.
0: Yeah. So you can see that even as funding has gone up, breakthroughs have not basically have have gone backward. And you can also see this in outcomes we we sort of care more about even than breakthroughs, right? Like we're the most medically advanced country in the world and life expectancy is going backward. Same thing in the, in the UK. And what these scientists highlight is, and, and some of them study the science of science, right? Like how can we have good science get done? And what they find is basically that you don't want to force people to be too narrow. You be, you basically, we've created a system where we're so focused on applications that we require people to narrow their research such that they can quickly come up with applications. And that and that's when they're applying for grants. And that is pretty much exactly contradictory to the history of science and where impactful discoveries come from. They typically come from someone who has some question they're curious about. There, there may not be any real clear application. And just investigating that question leads to these huge breakthroughs. Because the huge the biggest breakthroughs tend to come where you don't really know what the right question is, right? And so you have to allow people to explore pretty broadly. And the problem we have now as, as one of the one of the characters in the last chapter is this guy who's, you know, arguably the most influential immunologist in the world. And he's starting a program that's meant to de-specialize. The education of future scientists. Because he says what we have now is what he calls a system of parallel trenches, where everyone is in their own little trench and they're not usually standing up and looking at what's going on in the next trench, even though that's where their answer is. And so, what he's seen in immunology is everyone's studying one tiny part of a complex system in such isolation that we've failed to understand how these systems work and connect ideas. And you can write a grant. That is for the study of some system of the body, and you can't even get it funded because the people reviewing it only know about one little aspect and say, well, you know, we don't really we don't really know about the rest of that. So what we really the world is divided up into disciplines, not because that's the way we divide the world into disciplines, not because that's the way the world really is. It's a necessary evil for just categorizing the studies we do. So we're in the place of putting the world back together after we study things in individual disciplines. And so I think what he and other scientists who are paying attention to this want to do is make interdisciplinary research and interdisciplinary thinking systematic because the world is interdisciplinary. And we're we're going in the wrong direction on that as we force people to be more and more narrow. So they see a smaller and smaller part of complex systems.
1: But I mean, do you think there's hope? Like, is it, is that sort of a growing idea or growing movement within science that we need to get interdisciplinary if we want to make breakthroughs or people really entrenched in their Their little silo.
0: I mean, I think there are people like that scientist. His name is Arturo Casadevall, who are so prominent in their area that they are bringing some attention to it. But I still think it's going against the grain. Like I went to a panel that he was on about there. There's this thing going on in science right now called the replication crisis, and it has to do with a huge number of scientific findings turn out like not to be true, basically. And part of the reason for that, Arturo argues is because of this certain type of specialization where people are doing science before they've really been taught the broader concepts of how scientific thinking should even work. So they essentially don't know what they're doing and and end up with bad results. And by the way, in the book, I confess to the fact that when I was a science grad student, I did the same thing, but I didn't realize it until much later when I was a journalist writing about bad science, uh, which is kind of disappointing. And so Arturo's on this panel talking about how we need to despecialize science education and the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, arguably the most prominent medical journal in the world says, no, you can't do that. Like there's already, it already takes way too much time to, in education for students to become MDs or PhDs. Like we can't add time with this broader conceptual stuff and having them do things that aren't exactly where they're going to work. And Arturo's response was, yeah, get rid of all that didactic stuff that we teach them that goes in one ear and out the other ear in two weeks anyway, and that they can find on their phone what we've got, he said, is is a bunch of people walking around with all the world's knowledge on their phone and no ability to integrate it. So his feeling was, you can get rid of that stuff. Like our tools, our information finding tools have allowed us not to worry as much about teaching that didactic stuff because we can find it. Meanwhile, we've skipped over teaching people the broader concepts of how to even do science. And it's it's helped land us in this, this replication crisis where it's turning out that most scientific findings are probably not true because- you know, I was a grad student at Columbia University, which is obviously like a reputable institution and skipped straight to learning the particulars of Arctic plant physiology before I learned how science and statistics actually work for me to draw true conclusions. And so I have published research out there now that I'm quite sure would fall to the replication crisis if someone tried to replicate it.
1: Well, it's probably an example of, of learning a procedure, right? Sort of sh- shallowly, superficially, you, you, you do it and then you get the, it looks like science, but not really.
0: Yeah. And the thing is one of now with computers, anyone can get a huge data set and run statistical programs on it. And you'll come up with some positive results. And the fact is like myself, most of the scientists out there don't really understand what they're doing when they're running those statistical tests because we've never even been taught to think about it basically. So again, only as a journalist was, was I made to sort of reflect on what I'd been doing in the past and, And so that's what I think Arturo wants to do is he he wants to teach thinking. And that's what James Flynn of the Flynn effect suggests in the second chapter is we have to teach these varieties of thinking. Otherwise, none of this didactic information and procedures really makes sense anywhere except for these incredibly narrow applications.
1: Well, David, there's a lot more that we could talk about because there's so much more in this book. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
0: DavidEpstein.com. There's a description of the book and some some early reviews up there, and I think it's uh, and and some other work, and it should be hopefully available in uh, your favorite bookseller.
1: David Epstein, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure mine. My guest today is David Epstein. He's the author of the book Range. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also, check out my previous interview with David. It's episode number 127. It's about his book, The Sports Gene. Check out our show notes, aum.is slash range, where you can find links to resources. We can delve deeper in this topic. Also, check out David's website, davidepstein.com, where you can find more information about his work. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find our podcast archives. There are over 500 there, as well as thousands of articles written over the year about personal finance, health and fitness, style, how to be a better husband, better father, you name it, we've got it. And if you'd like to, check out ad-free episodes of The Art of Manliness. You can do so only on Stitcher Premium. And so you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium when you sign up at stitcherpremium.com and use promo code MANLINESS. After you sign up at stitcherpremium.com, you download the ad, App on iOS and Android and you can start enjoying new episodes of The Art of Manliness ad-free. Again, use that promo code MANLINESS to get a free month of Stitcher Premium. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Reminding you not only listen to the A1 Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.